Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's How to Eat an Elephant. I'm joined by the usual suspects, Megan. Hello. And Emily. Hi. My name is Ian. We're glad you're with us. Today, we are going to tromp off across the battlefield of history. We may even actually meet Napoleon Bonaparte, who seems like a real tool, if I may say so. Well, he was actually quite nice. He was not either. It was all a self-aggrandizement. We'll get to that. We'll get to that whole thing here here in a minute. But I just want to know before we before we actually start talking about content of these these four chapters because it was a shorter section this time around. Given that we have finished volume 1, I want to know how you guys feel about the whole volume just in brief because we are in fact going to spend some time doing a recap. Um so for those of you listeners who may just be joining us here at this late stage of the game, um you're going to have a chance to catch your breath. Cast your eyes across the whole scene as we've as we've discussed it so far. But to the two of you, how did it feel to finish this volume? I'm excited for a little recap episode because I do kind of feel a little, a little shell shocked, dis- disjointed, <laughs> maybe like so much has happened mm-hmm. and we're so far. I, this could be a novel in itself. Here we are almost on page 300 and so much has happened. And we have so far to go, but it will be fun to kind of draw all the threads together because right now I'm just kind of feeling like I'm reeling a little bit from how much has happened. I think that's totally fair response. One with which I identify. We've definitely gotten a glimpse into every aspect (laughs) of Russian life in this period. (laughs) Megan, do do you have any thoughts about the end of this volume or are you just ready to dive into content here? Well, I'm going to have a hard time not diving into content. And left to my own devices, I would go directly to character development for Andre. Well, so okay, probably... let's do it then. Let's let's jump in. We're at, we're in chapter 16. It opens with Kutuzov, accompanied by his adjutants, riding behind his troops into battle. Now, to set the scene, and you guys can um, remind me of some of the finer points of detail, I'm sure, but it appears to me the atmosphere is that the Russians are walking into somewhat of a trap. They are deployed and ready to catch Napoleon off guard. In fact, he is not off guard. His cannons occupy the heights. And it seems to me that we have a charge of the light brigade situation a-brewing. Yeah, and didn't we see that coming in the last section? Uh, Kutuzov kept telling everyone that the French were closer than they thought. And mm-hmm. no one would believe him. And so he has been anticipating and preparing his own unit of men for a rout. So he's pretty sure that they're all going to get slaughtered. Right. I think he made it pretty obvious in our last section that he assumed the worst was coming and said as much to Andre. Man, so is it that the that the sovereign is there and the wheels of history are turning and there's nothing a guy like Kutuzov can really do about it because he's not the person in authority at the time and maybe the guy that does doesn't know as much as he does? Is that 
well, how it's going? I was just going to say, artistically speaking, it's interesting that he does just kind of disappear after this opening section. He's They're marching closer and closer to the French. The last thing I think we hear is uh, that a cannonball grazes Kutuzov's horse. Uh, he turns to Andre and says, stop those villains, uh, initiating Andre's little heroic episode which we'll talk about but but that's it that's the last word that we have from Kutuzov on the battlefield and then when we have Nikolai searching for him he can't find him well and I, there's there's some controversy as to who Nikolai is actually searching for but well, we'll get to that in a second <laughs> but no I think you're right I, the line that jumps out at me from this opening couple of pages is when he's grazed by the cannonball and uh it says the wound isn't here, it's there, said Kutuzov, pressing the handkerchief to his wounded cheek and pointing to the fleeing men. Which, on the comment of the character himself, is, don't pay attention to me, this is but a scratch, we have a route on our hands, think about things that matter. And this little scratch on my cheek is not one of them, which is great and, and somewhat heroic and awesome. What I think is happening from the author's point of view is he's advancing a narrative that says, hey... This battle's not about Kutuzov. Kutuzov is not the point here. The common soldier hmm. and the, the men in the trenches are the real casualties of the situation. It would be easy for us to look at this as a Napoleon versus Kutuzov situation. And indeed, Andre and Rostov and Boris and the other young men of the army have been having this kind of argument back and forth across the lines all along. I think maybe Tolstoy is suggesting, even in this just one line, that that is an inaccurate way to look at war. It's not about the guys delivering the orders at the top. It's about the men carrying them out. And that's the blood that's really going to be spilt over these issues. Well, and I took it as it's it's the shame of their retreat. It's the mm. shame of their inability to stand up to the French. That's the wound. It's a, it's a wound of spirit and lack of courage on the part of the men. Yeah, I like that as well. I mean, I think it's definitely true. And... I don't know. I can't be persuaded to blame them for running, given the fact that they are walking into a bottleneck being shot down upon by cannon from a great height. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like it's, a bad, it's a bad situation that they're walking into. And Kutuzov knows it. It's a, it yeah. This is a bloody, bloody, terrible situation. I don't quite know how to express what I'm thinking, but this scene reminds me of the Red Badge of Courage again. I know we've mentioned that before, but... Um, you have one character in the Red Batch of Courage running in terror from uh, a battle. Now we have the entire army fleeing together. Mm. But it it's kind of a strange combination of uh, words that lump them all together in a faceless mass and words that point out their individuality and their emotion of fear and, um, and, and rightly so, right? You've got Kutuzov saying, stop them, stop those villains, the wound is there. But also, mm -hmm. he steps out of the way, realizing that it's impossible to stop them. In other words, of course you're fleeing. I would too. I can't because I'm your commander, but I would. Hmm. Right? I think it's a fascinating juxtaposition of, on the one hand, this mass of people, we need to think of them as faceless. They need to do what we want as a piece on a chessboard. And yet, they are individuals, and this is a route, and we knew it would be, and here's how human nature responds to that. Save yourself, you know? Well, yeah, I think you're right, because actually, and it's not, um, it was close to the last line from Kutuzov when he says, stop those villains, but he says one more thing on the next page, and it's really revealing, to your point, Megan, um, Kutuzov moaned with an expression of despair and looked around, 
Volkonsky, he whispered in a voice trembling with awareness of his old man's strengthlessness. Yeah, that's the emotion. Volkonsky, what's going on? And so there's a bewilderment Mm -hmm. that comes Mm -hmm. along with the situation. He's basically, and you could look at it a bunch of different ways, and I really like the way you put it, Megan, that he's, there's a human element of the situation that he's not free to stand there and use them like pieces on a chessboard when they're fleeing in front of him and he's watching them getting blown apart by cannonballs. Uh, There's also, though, I think, an an aspect of this where he has stepped down into the experience of his men. Mm -hmm. It's an experience that he had early in his career because nobody starts out as a general. Right. But his strength has deserted him. He's old. And now he is actually physically incapable of doing what is necessary. And so I think the plight of the army, which is we've walked into a route, we knew it was coming, and there was nothing to be done about it is now mirrored in Kutuzov's bodily situation. He right. is likewise helpless. And that's a, um, I don't know, it's interesting to look at Kutuzov as a, as a lens mm-hmm. to, see the, to see the Russian army through. That weakness is a theme that's kind of picked up throughout the rest of this chapter. Because mm. uh, the very next thing that happens is Andre saying, okay, here it is. This is my Toulon. It's come upon me. And uh, he cries forward, lads, in a childishly shrill voice. I love that part. That's yeah, so good. Description. He seizes the standard and it says he was barely able to hold up the heavy standard as he ran forward. So with un- but OK, but with unquestioning assurance that the entire battalion would run after him. Well, yeah, it's his it's a juxtaposition between his own confidence in his own strength in being a Napoleonic figure, but his bodily weakness, the imagery that Tolstoy is using here is, is one of weakness. And Mm -hmm. and then eventually when he does get gunned down, it says uh, the pain distracted him and kept him from seeing what he had been looking at, which again, I think is, is a metaphorical way to say Mm -hmm. it's the weakness, it's the suffering, it's the pain that's going to prevent him from seeing the world the way that he had seen it before, right? He saw it with the assurance that the entire battalion would, would run after him. He saw the world through the, this being his Toulon, and then it's the pain that keeps him from seeing that again. Yeah, it steps in and reorders the way he looks at the world. But it's interesting, though, because um, I think this could be preachy. Tolstoy could be saying things about war, He could be saying things about youth. He could be saying lots and lots of different things. And instead, he's giving us a tremendously balanced view of the situation. It's just loaded with realism because, in fact, he grabs the standard, charges forward with a hurrah, and everyone does follow him. Yeah. The battalion is galvanized by this heroic action. The fact that in Andre's heart and mind, it's not a mature heroism, but is instead a childish assumption of his glory doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of things all that much. He picks up the standard, he charges forward, everyone charges with him. It is glorious what actually happens. But Tolstoy, in one breath, says heroism is a thing, and and small actions on behalf of single men can change the course of a battle. Also, you don't get to see that when you're in the middle of it. In other words, heroism is not something that can be grasped and owned. Uh Pain comes in and steals it from you. And there he is at the end of the scene, having been bashed across the head, un- incapable of seeing his Toulon, because, as you said, Emily, the real world has nipped up and, and bit him. So this leads to an interesting moment, though, doesn't it? 
what might that be? Who wants to talk about it? <laughs> well, I got to talk about it again because I just, I can't get the association of the Red Badge of Courage out of my mind. Both of these authors, Stephen Crane and Tolstoy, are juxtaposing the natural world with this violent war scene. And in Stephen Crane's depiction, nature is kind of heartless. But in Tolstoy, nature is full of vibrant life that is kind of like a salvific image in the story. And in this scene, Andre is laying on his back, looking up at the sky and describing how lofty and infinite and peaceful it is and how he's never really seen it before. So Ian, you were saying that he can't see his Toulon, but now it seems to me that he's seeing for the first time in some ways. And I just wondered, I guess, what is it that he's seeing in the sky? Is it just that it's peaceful? Is it just that it's the absence of violence? But what, what's up there that he's noticing for the first time? This reminded me of Anna Karenina and the ending of that story with Levin. Mm. Well, looking up it's convenient, the Emily, that it reminds you of more Tolstoy <laughs> that you've read. <laughs> it's convenient and also I think maybe significant in a lens through which to look at this moment because having read Anna Karenina, I found this a little confusing because Levin's experience again comes at the end of the story so it's a exclamation point on the part of Tolstoy's as he's crafting the story and for him he looks up and he is also his uh, worldview is revolutionized and he finds life and meaning and well for Levin it's uh, everything becomes charged with meaning but Andre looks around and finds meaninglessness in the world insignificance everything everything is a deception except this infinite sky there's nothing nothing except that but there is not even that. There is nothing except silence tran- and tranquility. That's so, the final sentence there. So he is finding some kind of meaning in the sky. and But then when Napoleon is walking the battlefield, it says that he wished all he didn't care who it was who was standing over him all he wished is that someone would come and get him because all of a sudden this life was beautiful to him in a way that it hadn't been before and he Mm. wanted to return to life that seems different than some of the language that he's using in his own head to describe the the insignificance of the world but the deep significance of the sky it's just that somehow the the dots haven't connected yet to charge the world around him with right. meaning in the way that it does for Levin at the end of Anna Karenina. It does seem like a step in that process, though. I think yeah. the way I read it, and maybe this was wrong, but he seems to be finding that glorious dream of Toulon to be empty um, yeah. and mm-hmm. yes. perhaps is looking at the sky as a possibility of sufficiency. And we don't know. He doesn't even know yet what that represents. And so he says sort of casting about but there's not even that. There's nothing except silence, tranquility. It seemed to me like he's musing and wondering rather than rejecting significance and meaning altogether. It seemed right. like, well, not, not in this thing that I was putting all my hope in, not in glory and military might, but maybe in the sky. What's up there? There seems to be this lofty significance. I yeah, wish I, I had time to right. find it, you know? Well, and I think it, there is a little bit of... There's a little spidery nihilism under the surface there yes. because I think I think especially for a youth who is disillusioned by something. Yeah. The first move is disappointment and 
and despair in some ways. This doesn't feel like a despairing experience here, but I think some of the things he says in chapter 18 make it feel a little Maybe. bit more that way, yeah. that tend towards nihilism a little more thoroughly. But there's this, um, this wry smile from Tolstoy because he says... There is nothing. There is nothing except silence. There is nothing except tranquility. <laughs> and thank God. Yeah. So if there's nothing but you're thanking God, that's ironic. And well, I think that's I think that's good. And I really like it. And I think that Tolstoy is um, prepping us to compare Rostov, Nikolai's moment from the previous section where he was wounded, and Nikolai's perspective that we're going to get for the next couple of chapters to Andres and they can be compared because they're similarly childish I just think they're approaching the issue from two different angles I, I do think that because this description comes so soon on the heels of him having a childishly shrill voice in his charge he's coming to some realizations and I liked what Megan was saying about this being the first steps in the right direction hmm. uh and I do think he's drawing on the natural imagery to do that. This is a trope that's come up in his writing before, but it's coming fairly towards the beginning of his story. So it makes sense that this wouldn't be the complete revelation. And so it's interesting to see the disjointed thoughts. It's, it's, all, it's disjointed all the way to the bottom. I mean, I think Ian's not wrong. There's some disillusionment that's at least heralded in this scene and maybe he's going to dive deeper Good into word. that who knows but there's going to be disillusionment but he also says that he's happy mm -hmm. so he can't decide what he is in a lot of different ways you know do we think that in a and like and this is a um <laughs> a horridly unsymbolic reading but do you think he's in shock oh yeah that and he doesn't have the language to describe what he's feeling that this is a very emotional experience for him and all that he has is his own philosophy that he's developed thus far to think about it. And so it's he's encountering something new, but... Doesn't have a vocabulary for it. And yeah. also doesn't understand it with his head yet. And so as he, return, as he begins just to describe it with his head, it's both indifference and a beautiful life. And... He hasn't lived out this new experience that he's had yet, so he doesn't have any way to contextualize it. That, that's brilliant. I think that's really true. So let's so let's move on though, because I think we are set up to compare this to Nikolai's experience of being cast into the fire and having his childlike vision of war and all its consequences challenged by the reality. Um, the last time we saw Rostov, I don't, know if, I don't know if this is literally the last time we saw Rostov, but I do remember his first charge where he where he's wounded in the arm by falling down and then tosses his rifle. <laughs> tosses, wasn't it his rifle or was it? I don't remember what it was, but he throws a weapon at the enemy and, and runs, runs howling into the woods. And then, of course, recasts the whole experience as some heroic gesture. Um so he's already had an experience of war of warfare that hasn't brought him up quite as short. Well, but I remember one. he had another one after that that was pretty significant, actually, where he was going. He was he was charging with his other men, um, right. not where he was standing alone and being attacked by French men and threw his pistol in their faces. But he charged with the men and his horse got shot out from underneath him and he was wounded. And he had that yeah. whole scene with with what's his name, the cheerful cheerful lieutenant guy who saved his life and gave him a ride and yep 
And I was that's exactly what I was referring to because there's a moment where he has a similar and maybe you guys can help me remember exactly how it goes, but there's a similar reverie to the one that Andre just had laying on the battlefield. Doesn't his go something more like why are they trying to kill me, me who yes. everyone loves? Yes. So it's yeah. the the resolution of his encounter with the harsh reality of war is oh but love but human love but but uh but brotherhood but why doesn't this doesn't make any sense that we'd we'd be trying to kill each other and it's filtered through his childish lens of everyone i've ever known in my life thought i was awesome because i've been in the bosom of my loving family right but it's also i think it's tolstoy he's always saying something a little bit larger there's this this uh interjection of a purer way of looking at the world that doesn't support this kind of meaningless squabbling, basically. But it's impractical because he immediately turns all of that love and devotion to the emperor. The sovereign. The sovereign. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So he's still seeing things in a very idealistic and... Uh, yeah, of course he is. And I think that's that was kind of the point I was trying to make is that we're seeing two different kinds of childish idealism. Hmm. One from Rostov one from Andre and they're different sides of the same coin. And I think we've, this encourages us to watch their stories in parallel through the end of this section, um, which maybe will present some cool observations. Maybe it won't. I don't know. No, I can see that too. I even thought um, there was a time not long ago when Andre was delighted to be given a message to take back to a sovereign. Hmm. Right. And he felt, too big for his britches he was so excited about that and now we mm-hmm. see rostov in a in a similar context it's like he's a couple steps behind andre in his own development and so we're kind of seeing foreshadowing for rostov as we watch andre's story and then we go back a couple paces to see look at this youthful idealism still you know yeah that's i hadn't seen that and i, I like it a lot but then there's also a way in which andre is a little bit behind rostov because he hasn't had mm-hmm. his experience with the reality of battle and being wounded yet the way that right. Nikolai has. Yeah. I just, I think I find it interesting that Nikolai is still behaving in the same way though. After this has happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> which makes me wonder what we're going to see from Andre. And we don't, we don't get to that at the end of this first volume because we end it with him still being wounded. And so I, I don't know. I wonder if how Andre is going to take all of this. Is he going to return back to his roots like Nikolai does or not? It's a little jarring, I think. Because we get a description of Rostov that is childlike, involuntarily, what does he call it? Uh, transfixed with excitement and hope. Bagration is not transfixed with excitement and hope. He's looking for any reason he can not to deploy his troops. And he figures sending someone with a, with a, a missive to ask for more instructions is a great way to delay action. And whoever he sends will probably die on the way anyhow. So there's a contrast, a harsh contrast between the way Rostov feels being given an assignment to go seek out Kutuzov and what's actually happening to him. Am I reading too much into that? I don't think so, but I, I don't think that the useful idealism lasts very long, which might be uh, what Emily was, was getting to. He sees some things on the way to even finding anyone worthy of accepting his message. He sees some things that are absolutely horrifying to him. The thing that sticks in my mind is um, the this horse guard comes racing past him and it's this glorious group of the strongest men you could imagine and um there's this just it's almost like an aside but this was a brilliant attack of the horse guards which astonished the french themselves rostov was horrified to hear later that of all that mass of enormous handsome men of all those brilliant rich men 
youths, officers, and junkers who had ridden past him on a thousand ruble horses, only 18 were left after the attack. So he's just seeing intense losses firsthand, which is amazing juxtaposition to his idealism, you know? Among other things he sees is the fact that by accident, the Russians and the Austrians have begun shooting at each other oh, yeah. of at the French. Yeah. And he's he's asking some passerby, what is happening? Who is shooting? And everyone's like, I don't know. It's just total chaos. I think we're I think we're killing each other at this point. Well, yeah. And we didn't really mention it. But what Andre sees on the battlefield before he he's shot down and can't see anything is uh, the Frenchman and the artillerist tugging the, the ramrod battling over over a stick and he's like well why aren't they trying to kill each other surely the man with the knife is going to stab the other but they're just fixated on something so insignificant and unhelpful that's good i had not seen that but you're totally right like there's this out of the chaos of the battle these little moments of ridiculous preposterous humor sort of emerge wild to me yeah and I think the most humorous thing is the survival of his idealism in the face Mm -hmm. of all of this obvious defeat and tragedy and confusion he will not acknowledge that real things are happening and he keeps saying to himself he could not and would not believe it things like that the thought of defeat and flight could not enter Rostov's head right though he saw French guns and troops on the Pratzen Heights in the very place where he'd been told to look for the commander-in-chief he could not and would not believe it or he would not listen any further you know Mm -hmm. like he he's closing his mind on purpose to reality and clinging instead to this fancy that might be what's the most childlike about him yeah until he does eventually find the sovereign even though his message was actually for Kutuzov he does everything yeah. in his power to give it to the sovereign instead because <laughs> he, he that's what he's really wants to do and he finds the sovereign standing way in the back of the army and his adjutant is, is like hopping back and forth over a ditch trying to convince the the emperor to do it with him they're just kind of diddling around in the background of the battle it's just a very unheroic image of, of this man that he has idolized. Very unheroic, particularly considering that the description we get right before we see the sovereign is of the battlefield post-battle. And it's got this mm. really, uh, I don't know, it's it's a just a destroying image of dead bodies like sheaves on good wheat land. Do you guys remember that phrase? Yeah, yeah I'm looking Over at it right field, now. Do you want to read it, Megan? Yeah, it's just so striking. Over the field, like sheaves on good wheat land, lay dead or wounded men, 10 to 15 to an acre. The wounded crept together by twos and threes, and one could hear their unpleasant cries and moans, sometimes feigned, as it seemed to Rostov. Both of those words, unpleasant and feigned, those seem very much to come from Rostov. And that same idea of, I refuse to look at this, I'm not going to acknowledge the significance of this, I can't bear it, seems to be coming through pretty strongly. He sent his horse into a canter so as not to see all these suffering men, and he felt frightened. He was afraid, not for his life, but for the courage he needed, and which he knew could not bear the sight of these wretches. So that's the reality of the scene that he's standing in, and in that moment he sees his beloved sovereign, and it seems, I I agree with you, Emily, that, that the sovereign doesn't stand up very well by comparison to this tragic scene. What is the sovereign like? 
I'm trying to find the the scene I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, it's um, the the horseman is jumping over the garden ditch, trying to convince the sovereign to do it with him, and it says. The, this guy, turning his horse sharply, he leaped back over the ditch and courteously addressed the horseman with the white plumage, evidently suggesting that he do the same. The horseman, whose figure seemed familiar to Rostov and for some reason involuntarily riveted his attention, made a negative gesture with his head and hand, and by this gesture Rostov instantly recognized his lamented, adored sovereign. <laughs> so Rostov doesn't even recognize him upon approaching him. It takes a second. Um, so it, he's... You can imagine that he has built up in his imagination what he will look like, and he fails to meet that expectation upon first sighting him. And it says his uh, he was pale, his cheeks were hollow, and his eyes sunken. But there's all the more loveliness and mildness in his features. It's a very, very weak depiction. Also, it's that the Sovereign is afraid to jump his horse across this ditch. And the other guy's demonstrating for him, look, it's so easy. The horse can pull it off. Just drop the reins and let him jump. And the sovereign mm-hmm. will not do it. And Captain Von Tull on the next page arrives in the same place, offers him his service, and helps him to cross the ditch on foot so that the sovereign who wishes pansy. to rest can sit underneath this tree. So yeah, so actually what's happening is Rostov is seeing this beloved adored figure of his turn out to be a total pansy. Hmm, I didn't catch that. Um, which either. is crazy, and it 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 reinforces the fact that we don't actually get a lot of descriptions of the sovereign in this scene. There's like one sentence. Rostov saw the beloved features. The sovereign was pale. His cheeks were hollow. His eyes were sunken. And then immediately we go back into Rostov's vision of this man instead of the reality of this man. Mm-hmm. There was all the more loveliness and mildness in his features, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Rostov is not seeing things as they are, which is kind of the point you were making, Emily. That there's a there's a disconnect going on between his perspective and and what's in front of him. So he doesn't approach him. Right. Why? Well, don't you think it's connected? Don't you think he fears to approach him because the reality would come crashing in on his ideal? I mean, he's right there. He could go approach him, and yet he doesn't. And instead, he dives into self-flagellation over the fact that he couldn't go over there to his sovereign. Oh, he's not worthy. But actually, everything that we see from a distance of the sovereign is not worthy of this kind of admiration, right? Mm. If Rostov went and talked to him, it would be a real conversation. And he would no longer be this ideal of greatness and the reason that we're fighting that's so worth it. He would be a pansy who can't jump his horse over a ditch. And I don't know that Rostov can bear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And man, it's it's beautifully written. He decides not to go over there and he rationalizes it. Oh, the battle's over. The message I have to carry is now not only inconsequential, but also would be, no doubt, burdensome <laughs> and grief. <laughs> like it's, This is the sovereign's responsibility. He's unwilling to put the responsibility on the shoulders of the man who should be burying it. Yeah. But really what's what's sorrowful to Rostov, though he's convinced himself that he's not going over there for the sake of the sovereign. What's uh, actually grief to him is that he himself is is a coward. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is he's a coward. Oh, poor Rostov. Doesn't this section end in such an interesting way? I mean, there's a kind of a break in the middle of this chapter before we move on. I thought this too. Emily, tell us, tell us. What is the weird little interjection at the end of this section? Well, Rostov finally does what he was supposed to do and tries to find Katuzov, which, which he doesn't, we don't get that. He does find him, but he's headed in that direction. 
And it says, uh, ahead of him walked Kutuzov's groom, leading horses covered with cloths. Behind the groom came a wagon, and behind the wagon an old house serf in a peaked cap, a short coat, and with bandy legs. Whenever we see a serf, we should pay attention kind of in the same way that you've been encouraging us to pay attention to children. The serfs, mm. I think, are, are kind of an earthy wisdom for Tolstoy mm. as well. <laughs> Titus! Hey, Titus! said the groom. What? the old man asked distractedly. Titus, don't bite us. <laughs> you fool, the old man said and spat angrily. Uh, some time passed in silent movement, and then the same joke <laughs> repeated again. <laughs> so it was just That's terrible. This moment of utter ridiculousness <laughs> yep. in the middle of what has been built up in the imaginations of our characters as this consequential, heroic moment in history that's supposed to be so important lives hang in the balance and what we get to counterpoint is titus don't bite us <laughs> well and it's it's so funny because it's a trio it's a trio of images so there's rostov and his youthful idealism and his unwillingness to see the truth and like megan the the point you were making about both of those words describing it unpleasant and what was the other one unpleasant yeah. and feigned yeah have more to do with rostov's perspective than they do with the reality then titus don't bite us the humor of it and and all all these grand emotions and feelings aside we're just people out here and then to end the chapter we get dolikov leading all of the men onto the ice to drown and this is the most visceral scene that we've encountered so far easily uh, and i'll just summarize it briefly the army is fleeing an open open retreat, open route, and there's a bottleneck on a bridge, kind of like in the very first battle scene of the book. And yet, battle has been joined, rather than this being sort of a, a feint uh, where the armies are feeling each other out. The French know that they have the Russians strapped on this bridge, and so they are pelting the bridge with cannonballs, and men are just exploding where they stand. And everyone is in a panic. If I stand here for two more minutes, I'm dead for sure. And in that panic, Dolokhov runs out onto the ice of this frozen pond and says, look, it'll hold. Everybody run. And it won't even hold him, barely. It cracks as he's walking across it. But in their panic, they all decide, well, better to at least try and escape than stand here and wait to wait for my head to get blown off by a cannonball. And so they all run out onto the ice and drown. And it's, it is frank and startling and um, described with all sorts of dispassionate detail. And so, man, I just feel like I'm getting jerked around emotionally. I'm getting jerked around here. I'm getting this, the childlike perspective. I get Andre. I get Rostov. I get Titus. Don't bite us. And then I get open slaughter. I just wrote at the bottom of this section in my book, slaughter. I but mean, it's, it's awful. The understatement of it, I think, is what makes it so powerful. You hardly, you kind of have to read it twice to even see that basically what he says is these men all drown. And it's just that quiet understatement that puts it in such contrast to the high emotion of Nikolai's search for Kutuzov and the emperor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he ends it with the cannonballs went on regularly whistling and smacking into the ice, into the water, and most often into the crowd that covered the dam, the ponds, and the bank. Ugh. So let's move on here to the final chapter of our volume where we get we get a trip back to Andre who's having his own 
experience with his beloved sovereign, as it were. <laughs> his hero in life, <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte himself, has come down into the battlefield. And Andre actually gets to interact with him, or at least gets the opportunity to interact with him. Interact? He gets everything that he could have possibly ever wanted in life. Take it away, this moment. He He's laying on the ground, and he slowly comes to consciousness to discover... Napoleon, the actual Napoleon Bonaparte standing above him and he s- says things about him uh, like this was a fine death. He's receiving adulation and congratulation and praise because, from the man that he's idolized. And isn't it because Napoleon sees the way that he's lying there that he obviously made a charge with the standard and he was like he it's almost like Napoleon sees him in his glorious charge in his yep. Toulon and is recognizing his effort. He affirms the heroism says yes this this is the kind of soldier that I admire mm-hmm. and it says nothing to Andre he it falls on deaf ears. Well yeah he's it's uh, Tolstoy describes it as Andre heard these words as if he was hearing the buzzing of a fly. He was not only not interested, he didn't even notice, and at once forgot them. Mm -hmm. So whatever experience he's had with the sky, it it has at least completely torn open his, the previous perspective he held on the world, because when when he gets everything that he could have possibly wanted. Right, and this is the moment where he says, I only wish someone would come get me, because look at the sky, look at life, it is so beautiful. Couldn't Napoleon yep. just be a man right now and help me survive as a man and then we could keep living in this beautiful life? It's so much less about status and glory than it is about humanity in this moment. Yeah, yeah, and this is, I think, something that I think is encouraging in Andre's character development, that he actually appears to be interested in returning to life. He, mm-hmm. he doesn't say anything like, kill me now, or I wish... I wish I would just die here. Nothing is important to me anymore. So it isn't that life is completely indifferent. It isn't that there's nothing except for the sky. Whatever he's found in the sky does make him want to return back to life. Which actually, I hadn't noticed this before, but it's definitely a tone change for Andre. I think he was more indifferent to life before he was wounded than he is now. Because there was no glory in it. Well, maybe, except that he wanted, it was kind of like a death wish. He wanted glory and death kind of hand in hand, right? He wanted a glorious death, and now he would rather have a normal life. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is just, this is what I can't reconcile, is that desire in his heart to return back to life, and then his actual thoughts that he has in his mind, the words he uses to describe his experience, because... Not only does Napoleon stand over him, he's he is taken in by the French. He's taken to the French hospital, and he's put in line with the other prisoners of note and status to be paraded in front of Napoleon. And Napoleon stops and speaks with each of them. And when he has a moment to speak with Napoleon, and Napoleon again says, "You you are the young man. Uh, how are you doing? You were uh, he calls him my my brave again, affirming him." It says, to him at that moment, all the interests that occupied Napoleon seemed so insignificant. His hero himself seemed so petty to him with his petty vanity and joy in victory compared with that lofty, just, and kindly sky, which he had seen and understood that he was able to answer him. That he was unable unable to answer him. Mm. Uh, So good. 
right? Yeah. Everything that is petty has been blown away. But then it continues and says, then too, everything seemed so useless and insignificant compared with that stern and majestic way of thinking called up in him by weakness from loss of blood, suffering, and the expectation of imminent death. Looking into Napoleon's eyes, Prince Andre thought about the insignificance of grandeur, about the insignificance of life, the meaning of which no one could understand, and about the still greater insignificance of death, the meaning of which no one among the living could understand or explain. Later on, nothing, nothing is certain except for the insignificance of everything I can comprehend and the grandeur of something incomprehensible, but most important. See, I think all of this together is somewhat self-contradictory and a little confusing. And what it tells me is that he, we're not, he's not done. We're not, we're not mm-hmm. finished with Andre's development yet. This has been an impactful experience. It's shaken him out of his complacency and his arrogance, his assumption that he does understand the world and how it works. But now he's in some ways flying to yet another standard of which he knows not. I mean, the, um, it's it's a childish thing to say the insignificance of everything I can comprehend, and the grandeur of something incomprehensible but most important. I mean, like well, we're I, chuckling, we're chuckling at him a little bit. I don't know if we are. I don't know that I read it that way. I could be wrong, and I'm open to to new tr- new interpretation. But I think we skipped a really important section right in the middle of his musing. Here he gets the icon that Princess Maria mm-hmm. gave him. Uh, it was taken away from him by a French soldier, and now it's given back now that he's been honored publicly by by Napoleon. They're like, oh, man, we took some stuff from this guy. Whoops, shouldn't have stolen from him, right? So they give it back, and he begins to think about God for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, oh, thank God, initially when he was looking up at the sky, but it seemed kind of incidental, just a phrase that he would say. Now he's thinking about the nature of God, really. He says, it would be good if everything was as clear and simple as it seems to Princess Maria. How good would it be to know where to look for help in this life and what to expect after it there beyond the grave? How happy and calm I'd be if I could say now, Lord, have mercy on me. But to whom shall I say it? Either it is an indefinable, unfathomable power, which not only cannot address, but which I cannot express in words, the great all or nothing. Or it is that God whom Princess Maria has sown in here. Right. Yeah. And we were we took issue with Princess Maria's uncomprehending faith that there's a, her faith seems to be insistent but not perhaps understood or mm-hmm. or deep. So I do think that he's recognizing some true things here, and I even think that the things that he's thinking I would agree with. Right, life is insignificant, but death is insignificant too. Right, right. Uh, the this everything around me is insignificant except for the grandeur of something incomprehensible like these are all truths that he is grasping i'm just a little worried for him that the the repetition the 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 rhythm that it's all set to is insignificant insignificance 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 which is what makes me wonder if and i don't i don't mean to baldly contradict both of you i mean if we've learned anything on this podcast is that when the two of you agree and i disagree (laughs) you all are right but um (laughs) I guess what I'm seeing here is that the re- the repetition of that insignificant, insignificant, insignificant thing, this throwing of himself in his emotions into more emotions and turning to these emotions as the truest, most concrete things of the world is the direct opposite of what Tolstoy has been trying to tell us. He's been trying to elevate the homely, earthy, 
realism of the world. And I think he intends to, to reanimate it, or as you said, Emily, to charge it with significance. Mm-hmm. But the youthful way of adding significance to the world isn't something that any of these characters are going to stay in well, from what, my perspective. I think you're right. And I think what's going on is that Andre doesn't have anything to hang his hat on here that he he's encountering truths and ideas that are significant, but he doesn't have any of those tangible earthy things to charge with significance. Like what is he, what is going to be significant to him? He doesn't have any stable well, I guess, relationships. I guess, well, I guess what I was trying to say is he does. He just doesn't know it. I mean, he has a wife and child for Pete's sake. Right. He just doesn't. <laughs> he has. He hasn't put in the time for them to see that those things could be charged with significance. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That that we can agree on for sure. I just. Um, I. I guess I wonder. I'll. I'll phrase it as a question instead of a statement because I don't think we've read far enough to know the answer to it yet. But I don't know that he is encountering true things here. I think he's had a an experience that is going to radically alter his worldview. And I think we should be looking to it for the seeds of ideas that are going to be really, really important. But I don't think the author is calling us into his musings and saying, see how insignificant everything is. No, I don't either. I think, I think what we said before, all three of us, that he's in process and that this is a drastic change from his real, honest to goodness, nihilistic indifference before the battle. From before. All that there is in life is a glorious death, right? He's further than that now. And he's, I would, I guess the part that I emphasized where he's wondering and musing about the nature of God, that was hopeful to me because it's questioning in a way Mm. that he wasn't questioning before. When Maria begged him to wear that amulet, he basically couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't even questioning if there was a God. He just did it for her because she is weird and superstitious, you know? And now he's at least asking some good questions. Whether they're heartfelt or leading in, in the direction of significance or not, Oh, yeah, asking. or whether they're mature or immature right. or whether he has any answers, the fact that he's questioning is progress. I, I think, think I, so. I think I agree with you about that, yeah. And not just that, but... I think, Ian, you even said before that before you can come full circle to the way things actually mean something, you have to be disillusioned with the way Ooh, they don't mean. Absolutely. So it's actually a paradox. It's, yeah. it, he's right, right? It is the things that he had attached put, significance to. They are yeah. insignificant. It's true. In the, in, they're insignificant mm-hmm. in as much as he was wrong in the way he attached significance to them. Right. right. He yeah. just hasn't made it all the way through that paradox yet. So there's oh, a sense yeah. in which he can be saying these things and it can be truthful, but he hasn't made his way all the way through yeah. that yet, you know? That is you, excellent. Weren't you encouraged where that's concerned with his last, his like final assessment of Napoleon on the way out of this scene? He says um, he imagined his quiet life and peaceful family happiness at Bald Hills. He was already enjoying this happiness when suddenly little Napoleon appeared with his indifferent, limited gaze happy in the unhappiness of others and doubts and torments set in and only the sky promised tranquility. So it's almost like in his little uh, delirious dream, Napoleon comes in and he's realer than the Napoleon that, that Andre imagined before he's little and self-absorbed and limited. And Andre is unsatisfied. I think that was the most encouraging part of the whole scene to me. I, I really agree. I think that's well articulated. I'm glad we fought through that that confusion because I think we all arrived at the right 
understanding of what's going on here. Yeah, and it was confusing. I think it needed a discussion. I just keep thinking, you guys, if I was reading this by myself, I would I would be so confused in the the battle scenes. I don't think I track very well when there's in the chaos action. that we were describing today. Yeah, I don't. I'm great with the character development, but when the action starts, like if you guys hadn't said that all those those soldiers drowned, I don't think I think I was like Rostov. I wouldn't let myself really look at it. And I mm. wasn't sure what had happened. And it was really very powerful. So I appreciate well, the I, conversation. Oh, man, me too. This is super fun. Um, with that, I think let's move on into an informational section of the podcast. We have some exciting news for you listeners, especially for those of you who may be just joining us in the last couple of episodes. We are going to take ourselves a little bit of a break here between volumes and one of the things that we want to get up to during that break is putting together a retrospective episode. So we are going to be taking some notes. We're going to be gathering a list, compiling a list of important moments, important characters, important thematic developments, strings of conversation that we've been following along from the beginning all the way up through now. Just so that if you are, um, if you are a new How to Eat an Elephant listener, you can come up to speed quickly and be all ready to hit volume two with us with all of the vim and vigor that you can muster. Um, so expect there to be a little bit of a break in our release schedule. And then we will, we'll be giving you some more information about what the holiday schedule looks like, the reading uh, assignments for volume two and all of that good stuff along with that retrospective episode. Yeah. So that'll be coming out on November the 25th, the day before Thanksgiving, there's going to be a week off. And then we'll release the recap episode and some more information about what it's going to look like going forward. So in the meantime, my friends, thank you so much for your dedication to our show. We are having the best time in the whole wide world recording this, and we hope you are enjoying listening. Um, go to uh, reading some more Tolstoy. Get ahead if you feel like it. Why not? <laughs> and we will be with you again in just a couple of weeks with a recap of Volume 1. Thank you so much. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.